Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Oh, that's me. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm good. How you doing, Stephen? <laughs> good. So, we have a real treat in store for our listeners today. This is episode number 12, and this is going to feature two of the founding members of the Empire Brass Quintet, David Ohanian and Norman Bolter. Uh, David being the French horn player and Norman being the trombone player from the Empire Brass Quintet. So really excited to, to share this discussion with everybody. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great to get their takes on the project and just kind of hear their general stories about playing with the with the quintet. It was um, really, really fascinating to hear about you know how this all came out and the dynamic uh, in the recording sessions and all that stuff. So I really think people are going to enjoy this one. And obviously we don't have to tell you that you're already listening to the episode. You already clicked on it, but yeah, uh, so you already see the title. But. Right. But yeah. Um, what really helps us out is if you share these episodes with people who you think might enjoy them, we're up on YouTube, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts and all the social media platforms. So you can head over there, give us a like, a subscribe, all that good stuff. And that would really help the show out. Here's a little bit of background on some of the music that you're going to be hearing about. The Empire Brass Quintet put out an album in 1976 titled The American Brass Band Journal. And this album was played on modern instruments and is primarily playing the music of G.W.E. Friedrich. And we don't know too much about Friedrich as a composer. He's a mystery. He is a mystery. But we do know that he put out this uh, collection of music in the 1850s and a number of the tunes are based off of songs composed by Stephen Foster because Stephen Foster had recently signed an exclusive deal with the publishing company. So uh, Friedrich did a bunch of marches and waltzes and quick steps and stuff based on a bunch of Stephen Foster music and that's primarily 1850s music that they recorded on the first album. And then on their second album, it's titled The American Brass Band Journal Revisited, but it's not actually the Brass Band Journal collection. The Revisited album is performing music from the John Stratton Military Music Collection. This collection is was published after the Civil War, but was uh, is most likely music that was played during the Civil War. It's just music that was published kind of after the fact, after kind of collecting it from various sources and stuff. So both... Uh, collections are considered to be Civil War era and music that would have been played during the Civil War. Both the 1976 album and their Empire's 1978 album were both played on modern instruments, with the second of which uh, was conducted by Frederick Fennell. I think that covers all the background. What do you think, Stephen? I think so. I think that's a good primer for uh, for some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Um, and if you haven't heard these two albums yet, after the episode, listen to the episode first, but after the episode, uh, go track these albums down because Chris and I have been talking, uh, you know, leading up to this interview. Uh, these are some of the first albums for both of us that really kind of got us into this music and really interested in diving deeper into it. Um, and you're not going to beat the playing on the two albums. So uh, like I said, if you haven't heard them yet, uh, definitely check them out. They are, in my opinion, two of the best albums of this period of, of brass music. So I, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. So enjoy our interview with David Ohanian and Norman Bolter from the Empire Brass Quintet. Thank you guys so much for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time on the Saturday 
to, to speak with us. It's really exciting. Steve and I were both kind of curious as just a little bit of a background uh, for our listeners that might not be as familiar with you guys as performers or Empire. If you could maybe each provide a little bit of background on maybe your, your musical background and maybe how Empire first came into being. Well, uh, I guess I was in it uh, slightly before Norman was. So I'll tell you uh, what I know of it, and then Norman can pick up after that. Uh, in 1972, uh, Leonard Bernstein premiered his mass at uh, Lincoln's at uh, uh, Kennedy Center in D.C. And uh, he chose from that uh, some of the musicians from the T- uh, Tanglewood uh, Berkshire Music Center Orchestra that summer. Among those people were Charlie Lewis, Rolf Smedvig, and Sam Palafian. And so uh, during intermissions of the rehearsals and the concerts in Washington, they would get together with a couple couple other guys and play brass quintets, a horn player and, I, I mean, uh, a trombone player. And I think it was Ray Cutler who was actually in the mass too. He played trombone. And so those four guys came back to Boston to go to school after the mass had premiered and uh, looking, looking for a horn player to continue the brass quintet because they'd had a good time with that. So they chose me. I had just been in the BSO for a year mm. or a year and a half, and they asked me to join. I said, sure. So that's, that's how the nucleus of the group started. And then Norman replaced Ray Cutler in what year? Norm, was that 70? Well, I started to do some playing in 74. We recorded like the Fennelly piece, Breon Fennelly. We did some modern recordings and did concerts with you guys. Then officially I joined in September uh, 75 when I joined the orchestra and they joined the Boston Symphony. And was it 74 or 75 that we won Nomberg? It was uh, 76. 76, okay. Which was just a few months after this whole recording project was completed. Right. And that recording project, we were approached by uh, Columbia to uh, do do an album. Uh, I don't forget how it came about, whether we uh, uh, initiated or they did, but we had we wanted to exploit the uh, cent- bicentennial mm-hmm. at 76. Mm-hmm. And so uh, an American, you know, a piece of Americana made a lot of sense, 125 year old music. So Sam Palafian had a connection of, with, with John Newsom at the Library of Congress. And John Newsom, you know, had the only copy of this American Brass Band Journal music uh, in the library. He said, somebody should play this. Somebody should record this. And so it all came together. Like we were looking for a vehicle. He was looking to have this music recorded. Columbia was looking to exploit the uh, bicentennial as well. So that project t- kind of came together from several different sides. Gotcha, gotcha. It's kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm curious, was the the revisited album kind of something that was always in the back of your guys' mind as a sequel album, or was that kind of a spur-of-the-moment project? My recollection, I, I may be wrong, but my recollection was that, again, this was John Newsom had this music, and, and there was only one copy of it in the Library of Congress, and he said, well, you guys had some good luck with the other album. Columbia at that point, I guess, was not interested. So you notice there was a different record company, mm-hmm. the Sinequanon. And the Sinequanon Superba series was a uh, Sinequanon started uh, buying and re releasing uh, existing performances uh, that had sold well and, and recycling them. The Superba series was original music to, to Sinequanon. And they 
uh, we had already made a couple of albums for Cinequinon, which was down in Fall River, Massachusetts. And, they, and we, I think, sold the idea of a brass band album to them, which was completely unlike anything that they had had previous, but was also something that we were familiar with and we knew we could produce. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that came about, it sort of logically evolved out of uh, our past history. It makes sense. In, in the history of brass music, there are huge gaps. Like generally, if we're gonna play music that is authentic, it's either very old or very new music. So in, uh, you know, Gabrielli uh, wrote uh, a lot of music for winds, for, for vocalists and combinations. Whoever showed up at the church on Sunday would play Canzona Personare number two. You know, sometimes uh, uh, string instruments and, bra- and uh, brass instruments, sometimes it was vocalists that joined in just whoever showed up and um that you know beethoven didn't write any brass quintets mozart didn't write any brass quintets because the instruments had not evolved un- until like middle mid 1800s then in the 1950s the brass quintet was used as a composer's forum to experiment with new sounds and to uh, push the limits of the instruments and uh, the modern brass quintet was sort of formed at that time and there was a lot of music written for it but there are huge gaps in the repertoire you know Brahms didn't write anything for for a brass quintet mm-hmm. it wasn't really a formed ensemble so when we encountered this body of music this was for written for brass and it, mm-hmm. and it was a very natural fit for us so we jumped on it and kind of see it as the missing link for a brass quintet rip in a, in a way yeah it, it came and went in a very uh, sort of quick manner because it evolved, but it was important because you had a lot of amateur brass players and professional brass players that wanted to uh, have a body of music. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's, it was rather simple music. It was fun to play and it was enjoyable to listen to because it was tonal and it was, in, you know, it was, it was accessible, very accessible to a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. And they, um, uh, it, it was just a natural fit. And, and um, uh, so Friedrich put that together uh, to make money. And, he, yeah. and I think he did very well. We never thought about um, doing it on original instruments, though. I know that was one of your questions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I never remember that conversation. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and if you ask why, because why? it wouldn't sound very good. Yeah, that's true. They, None of us definitely... played original instruments. Yeah, they're, they're difficult to even, manipulate for sure. <laughs> and even if they, you know, if they were, you know, the metallurgy wasn't as good, the valves weren't as good. The, these instruments are all now we're now over a hundred years old, and we'd have to learn to play a different instrument. We wanted to produce a good sounding album that was in tune and had good sonority, mm-hmm. and uh, so the, it was really not a question gotcha. that we wanted to spend very much time on. Yeah. A, a similar kind of point. Uh, do you guys recall if when you recorded the album, if you were reading off of the original band parts from the uh, Brass Band Journal, or did somebody go in and kind of re-engrave those to, to clean it up a little bit? I honestly don't remember, but I think at the very most, there would have been uh, photocopies that we mm-hmm. used so that's to preserve yeah. originals. Gotcha. Yeah, we have copies, well, photocopies, obviously, of some of that Brass Band Journal stuff. And I think because it was actually published, it's pretty legible as far as this kind of music goes. 
Um, you know, some of the rests, like the, the quarter rests are backwards, yeah. eighth rests, as we know, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. um, other than that, I feel like those uh, brass band journal pieces are, are actually pretty easy to read. Yeah, which is good that they were, it had more of a handwritten feel. And today, people freak out if they don't see music that is done on a computer. Yeah. And, which I think is too bad. Mm-hmm. And back then, I mean, we were playing all sorts of things that were written by the, in the composer's hand. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I, I just have to say with this in terms of its historical significance, um, to make it not look like it was quite so cold and calculated as just a business deal, uh-huh. is I think there was a thought, like Dave said, 1976. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, the, and that the was a celebration of that, of that whole um, bicentennial. Yeah, so I guess if, as a bicentennial, trying to find brass music from 1776, that would be a lot harder than, <laughs> than right. the, the time period that you did. So I guess, yeah, the, uh, the Civil War era was definitely that, that earliest form right. of American brass music. Like what, what was saying. interesting, though, is like Hail Columbia was written, I don't know, in the 1780s, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's interesting. It, it does go far back. I don't know if there was original band music for that. I know there were, were words obviously put to it. Yeah, yeah. So something that was interesting with the, the Brass Band Journal in particular is that that particular publishing company had recently signed an exclusive deal with Stephen Foster, a number of the Brass Band Journal charts are written in March format and in the trio, it kind of quotes the uh, the original Foster melody that, that he had written, you know, likely for a, a minstrel song or a right. minstrel show or something. Like that. But uh, idea that it was popular Foster music, but as uh, David said, written by uh, GWE Friedrich, it's kind of cool to have that original touch of brass music there for sure. Trying to find a lot of information on Friedrich. Yeah, he's... Uh, <laughs> There's nothing really there. <laughs> he kind of exists in this bubble, as far as we know it, and that's about it. But yeah. You know, the uh, Yankee Doodle, I think, might even go back further. I think that might have been a Revolutionary War song. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, yep. for sure. They, My understanding of it is that it was originally kind of uh, poking fun at the Yankees type of thing. It was uh, a British song that was meant to kind of put down uh, the colonists and then kind of reappropriated it and it became an American song. You're like, no, we're going to take this. This is ours. And, <laughs> and of course, that had to be American. a trombone solo. <laughs> in, in the, uh, the brass band one, it was. <laughs> that's I remember funny. playing it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so kind of similar, since we just kind of talked about the, the music and how we were reading off of original parts and whatnot. One of the, the last questions in this section that I had, uh, do you recall why the decision was made on that first record in particular to bookend the record with uh, the tune Farewell, My Lily Dear, Quick Step, when I do know that there were at least two other tunes in that collection that you guys didn't record. I know this might be uh, asking a lot for being so far (laughs) removed, but... (laughs) Do you remember Norm? Do you? No, I don't. Not at all. But I can tell you that I think that that uh, Farewell, My Lily Dear is the best tune on the album. Yeah, it's very good. It could be that, uh, for one thing, that 
there wasn't enough room on two sides of a record to include all this material. Mm-hmm. I had to make choices, um, mm. but that's only a guess. Do you guys remember recording those other two? Or did you just not even go through recording them if you knew they weren't going to end up on the album? I don't remember. Gotcha. They may be in the Columbia Records vault yeah. somewhere. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. What's the one is the, the Mendelssohn's Wedding March, you know, which is yeah. relatively, you know, well known to, to modern listeners. So I thought that was interesting. I And I tried, I yeah. went back and I listened because the, the final track is labeled Farewell, My Lily Dear Quickstep, but then in parentheses it says Reprise. And I think that it's the same exact recording as the first one, unless you guys were money and it and it sounded exactly the same every single time you recorded i couldn't really tell no, i think it was exactly the same i yeah. think it was the same piece of tape mm-hmm. yeah and uh, it sounded great though it really really good but you know, it is a nice bookend you know for yeah. the whole yeah because you go through a lot of music i mean the pieces are kind of short but yeah. i mean at least for me when you're listening through the whole album you know in order towards the middle everything kind of just blends together yeah. so then <laughs> it's almost nice at the end you know you hear that you hear it, you know, oh, we must be at the end, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's kind of nice to have it there on both ends for me, at least. And yeah. it's interesting, too, to listen to the, uh, to look at the listing of uh, pieces, you know, and when, when you look at the two albums uh, together, I, I know from a brass player's standpoint, uh, it's pretty much, they're pretty much the same thing. But uh, musically, I think that the later album was better music. I think it was more sophisticated. It was uh, um, included some much better composers, some much longer, uh, more sophisticated pieces. But it's it, it was they, they both had a function. I mean, they were both really occasional music, you know, mm-hmm. m- music written for different occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, dance. There are a lot of dance uh, pieces there. There were marches. Um, the second album had. You, you know, the uh, Altam Zay, I, I think it is with a, it was a double quartet in the mm-hmm. style of kind of in the style of Gabrielli, as they explained mm-hmm. on the album cover. It had a cornet solo on it. Yeah, it had a lot more variety. For yes. sure. It did. That one didn't need a bookend because it was all. <laughs> you can see all... that leading to uh, John Philip Sousa's shows where he uh, toured the country and would put on brass uh, uh brass concerts that included vocalists that were would be singing opera arias along with uh you know mm-hmm. uh, the accompaniment you know he, it was really a variety show it was kind of like a, a lawrence lawrence welk of his time you know mm-hmm. but you could see it evolve from the american brass band journal album to the revisited album it became sort of more sophisticated and more um uh longer bigger bites of of music mm-hmm. definitely do you recall in that first recording project how you guys decided who would supplement the group to create the full brass band? Was that down to an each uh, instrument, like you guys being able to pick the other trombone and horn players, or did, did Rolf make that decision? How, do you recall how that was done? I think we talked about it. You know, uh, Sam uh, knew people in New York, like Jerry Schwartz. Mm-hmm. And John Swallow. And I'll tell you, those sessions for me, I mean, I was barely, I think at that time, I was probably just turned 21. I just got into the orchestra six months before that. And it was was a very big kind of like, wow, I'm sitting next to my teacher. Yeah. Because John Swallow was playing euphonium. 
Yeah, well. And and uh, Ralph invited uh, Gitala, you know, got right. Gitala played on it, and that was his teacher. So, uh, and these were Boston Symphony people, a lot of them were Boston, including the percussionists. So it was natural for us to want to use them. We asked them if they wanted to be on an album, and, and they said yes. Um, the, uh, uh, there, there was a couple of uh, top flight New York players, John Swallow, uh, John Taylor, and Mark Gould, who was then uh, principal trumpet in the Met. And these were all people that Sam knew from his association with them playing freelance work, doing freelance work in New York City. There you go. That makes sense. I don't think there was a conductor on the first album. Norman, was there a conductor? Man, we, we kept pretty good time on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds like as good as it can. The only thing is, like, when you listen to both albums together, you realize, like, there was much more nuance that was on the second album, like, like gentle retards and, and pauses and things. Because there was a conductor, we were able to do that. Yeah. So, so speaking of a conductor, then how for the second album, were you guys able to to get involved with Frederick Fennell to, to be involved with that second project? Do you recall? Yeah. Norm? I I totally don't. Oh, well, that was totally Sam Palafian because oh, Sam Palafian is from a fam- was from a family of lawyers and his father was a lawyer and his father was Fred Fennell's lawyer oh, in Miami. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I had no idea. Fennell was a family friend. And when he taught at the University of Miami, <laughs> when when Fennell taught at the University of Miami, uh, he got to know the Palafian family very well. Wow. Um, so they had known each other for a long time. And Fennell had a natural affinity for this kind of music and knew the styles very well. And he was very uh, happy to join in on this project. And because it was the first recording in the Library of Congress Auditorium in Washington, DC, which was a bit of a a coup, uh, we decided to do it there. And because we decided to do it there, we used players from the National Symphony, which we also knew uh, pretty pretty, uh, well casually at the time, but much better after the recording sessions were finished. Very cool. Yeah, I think that that was, <clears throat> we asked on our social media if anybody had a question. I know somebody chimed in, Adam Gallant, uh, had asked that how for the first album it was BSO players and the second album it was NSO players. But yeah, so I guess it was more of a facility of location. It's funny, I never would have guessed that that was how Fred Fennell got linked in with that project. I was like, well, Fred Fennell, he recorded the Our Musical Past album Uh with the library of congress so like i was like oh, okay so i know they did the second album at the, at the library of congress maybe you know Fennell already had the in there after working with them so maybe he found out about it and, and got involved that way but that's hilarious that you know he was a family friend and yeah. that's yeah. that's just how it works sometimes i guess yeah. so yeah i was oblivious to a lot of that stuff during this time i, I was just sitting there and all this stuff was going down and just to go back a little bit Funny thing is, we realized that I was in the Young Artist Program, the high school division, in 1971 and 1972. Mm-hmm. So I kind of met everyone and heard about them, but I didn't know that a few years later it would actually evolve to the point of playing in the quintet with them. Um, it was just a young pup. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was like just kind of just in there and they're doing all this stuff, but I remember 
Rolf inviting some people to his place at Tanglewood and we were reading through a lot of the pieces. I remember Chester was playing euphonium and you know, to try Chester Schmitz, the tubist, mm-hmm. former tubist of the BSO was playing euphonium going through this stuff. And um, everyone was just playing through it and seeing what there was. And, you know, I was a, at that time a student in the, uh, used to be called the Berkshire Music Center. Now it's called the Tanglewood mm-hmm. Music Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was in the works. It was in the works for a few years before it was recorded, at least a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. funny when we were talking to Ray Mace about the APQ projects, he said a very similar thing. You know, it's we, we asked him, you know, what he remembered from the recording sessions and whatnot. And he said, honestly, not much. We went in, you know, to, to do the project. And we were so focused on just playing everything that a lot of this stuff, looking back on it, that's significant now, kind of, you know, flew over our heads at the time. Um, so it's interesting that you say that, that, you know, you, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about now, you know, you were oblivious to it at the well, time. What's inter- I was oblivious to certain business type things and I mm-hmm. still kind of am. <laughs> <laughs> and especially the whole thing with Sam and the, I knew there was a connection with Sam and, and Frederick Fennell, but I didn't know, I, it didn't retain the lawyer aspect. That, that mm-hmm. is absolutely hysterical. But in terms of the human interactions that were actually happening on in the recording sections and all that, I remember quite well. So it sounds like it was more personal. Yeah. It sounds like Sam was a, a major facilitator of aspects of both of these projects, which I'm assuming probably filtered through to, to a lot of your guys's projects with Empire. Would that be true? Rolf was pretty spearheaded. Yeah. With, the, with certain <laughs> yeah. things, and especially the recording companies, right, Dave? Or you were yeah. too. No, he, he was very aggressive with, uh, uh, and, and he had and a lot of ideas. He had a lot of ideas, and he would, uh, you know, put on his coat and tie and go in and try to sell the idea and give him a big toothy smile, and, and he'd, he'd be successful a lot of the times. I got to tell you one thing about Rolf, how, how Rolf and Charlie, who are very different players, and come from very different kinds of background and training, how they became friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Charlie uh, and Rolf were first in um, in the Tanglewood Music Center. They both were accepted to Tanglewood uh, Music Center. I think actually Rolf was in Young Artist Program uh, in 71 or Rolf, 72. Rolf was in the TMs, the uh, Tanglewood Music Center in 71 because I was in Young Artist Program there. And Charlie Lewis was there too. Oh, oh. I heard so, them do Anne Helvenleben. Oh, I see. So anyway, the, how they got to be friends was that like Roth was kind of, was kind of a predator with a trumpet, and he uh, he arrived at he arrived at Tanglewood, and uh, he 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 gathered up his duets under his arm, and he went and knocked on all the trumpet players' doors. He he'd play duets with them until they would drop, and then he'd pick up his duets and he'd pack up his trumpet and walk to the next trumpet player and knock on his door and play duets <laughs> until that guy would drop. Yes. And then he met, then he knocked on Charlie's door and Charlie was, would, could keep up with him all night. So they became best of friends and formed the group. And Wow. That's a riot. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you guys recall uh, at the time of the release of either album, was there any type of differing reception to these albums when they came out at the time? Did people recognize them for their significance or... Uh, was it kind of just uh, in terms of audience reception, 
customer reception? Was it more of just like another Empire album? I couldn't say, uh, except that uh, there was, I think that the album sold pretty well. And I think that Columbia was happy with it. They, we ended up doing another album for Columbia later on, but they were happy because they were able to exploit this bicentennial with a lot of materials, like not, not just you know, brass records, but anything having to do with Americana in different periods of, of the American history. Um, and, and this was, I think, one of, the, one of the better selling ones of that group, the, the, uh, the bicentennial products. And I guess trying to, to sell the Americana aspect of it is maybe why the title is the American Brass Band Journal when the, mm. the, the book itself was just called the Brass Band Journal. Right. There was no American attached to it. No. Yeah, yeah. No. I, I can mean, tell you that when we used to play concerts, that became a very regular part, at least when I was in the group, which was for five years from 75 to 80. The audience really loved that diversity because we'd usually start, it was kind of like a Boston Pops format in a certain way. There'd be classical music and romantic or whatever was written, and then the newer pieces, and we'd end with certain popular things, Um, Gershwin and the like. But also, I remember in 1976, when we played our Carnegie Recital Hall debut, we ended with the Friedrich. And that was a whole contemporary music program from Etler to just family, to just really intense, you know, Ira Taxon wrote a brass quintet, really, really intense pieces. And we ended with the Brass Band Journal. Yeah. Do you remember which, what piece that that was that you guys ended with? I know we said that a lot of them sound the same, but. <laughs> um, I remember yeah, we played Lily, Lily Bell Quickstep a lot. Lily Bell Quickstep yeah. a lot. That's awesome that that it worked its way into your guys's live performance rep also that it wasn't just the bicentennial or sorry the yeah. centennial or no yeah sorry bicentennial yeah 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 it was and very well received in the concert yep. it was it was like washing the ear with, uh, you know with tonality after all the uh, heavy duty modern contemporary composers yeah, there you go. remember the Stravinsky we played we opened with Stravinsky fanfare for two trumpets too that opened yeah. up uh, oh, wow. some theater I forget which theater maybe it was Lincoln Center yeah I think so yeah that was a good piece it was a, it was it was all all meat and no potatoes except the the Friedrich at the end that was uh, it, it was kind of a release for the ear mm-hmm. sent him off <laughs> with a with a little pep in their step, right? <laughs> with a tune they can whistle, you know. That's, right. That's, right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you guys? Um, I know Norman, you were saying that you remembered a lot of the the actual performing elements of these projects. Are there any stories or any memories that necessarily uh, come to mind when you think about either of these recording projects? <laughs> That, well, that, that, that you're allowed to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> well, one, there's a couple of funny ones, but one I really remember vividly is, is during the recording of the American Brass Band Journal. Jerry Schwartz, who was principal trumpet of the Philharmonic at that time, and uh, Rolf, they were sitting, Jerry was here and Rolf was here. They were across from each other like this. And every once in a while, Jerry would make certain comments and things, you know, clean this, do this, and then Rolf would kind of then have his thing and he would say this and this. And then I remember when Rolf and, Jer- Rolf and Jerry went to tune 
they had a very, very different sounds. Very, you know, um, Jerry Schwartz was very compact, very clear, just, you know, very virtuosic as well. Mm -hmm. Rolf sounded like a great dancer, you know, just so fluid, so alive. And so when they were, <laughs> when they were tuning, Jerry played the E flat. He said, here, I'll play the first one. And then Rolf played it. And Rolf, you know, I, he purposely, I could feel it. I mean, we were very young. Rolf purposely tried to envelop his sound. And, and after, so when they were tuning, <laughs> Jerry goes like this, Rolf goes like this. And Rolf looked at me and went, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with that look like a young person, my sound totally enveloped his. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <You> got him. <laughs> and stuff like that because it was a very big age differentiation mm -hmm. in the group. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least by 30, 35 years, yeah. with Mundy and Swallow being in their early 50s at that time. I was 20. Rolf was maybe 22 or 23. And so, you know, um, it's a very big difference. But I remember all, we were going out to lunch and I was just so happy going out to lunch and <laughs> being with everyone and, yeah. and then coming back and just playing. Mm -hmm. And we used to play. I mean, we were when we rehearsed as a group, we used to play all day long, it seemed. We'd have a BSO rehearsal in the morning and then we'd rehearse in the quintet all afternoon or we'd have the BSO concert that would end at 1030 at night. This is not in the recording sessions but just the quintet. And we'd go over to Dave's apartment, which is in Back Bay, and we'd rehearse from 11 to 2. Oh. We'd, we'd have just, you know, rehearse all the time. So we had that mentality going into this session, too, that we're just going to be there and play as long as it would take to have it happen. And Rolf wouldn't stop, no matter how tired anyone else was. <laughs> Do you, do you recall if having the expanded roster for either of these albums that affect the the time commitment for the recording session in either way? Um, what was there? Two or three sessions in one day or two? I recall two. At I remember, least. But I mean, we had to do some rehearsal with everybody. Yeah. So it might have gone over two days. I don't. I don't honestly remember. Yeah. But um. But you know, I, what I remember I mean, uh, about that was that particularly about the first session was that, you know, when you, when you're playing with players that are better than you are. And I, I always felt that these guys, mm -hmm. they would pull me up. There was a synergy that happened when you play with players that are so experienced and so competent that they can just walk into a session, put on the microphones and play down the first time and sound great. You know, there was a synergy that I experienced that I will never forget. And it was just like, Everybody was making everybody else sound better. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how else to say it. It was there was just this wonderful uh, sense that the sum of the parts came to be something greater than the individual parts, it, and it was a, a magical uh, mm -hmm. uh, experience to have. I agree. Do you recall the moment when you guys played in that group for the very first time with the the full expanded brass band? I mean, well, with the full roster that was on. I mean. Uh, that probably that feeling happened from the very beginning of yeah. the the first 
rehearsal of the first session. You know, everybody was, of course, on, you know, good behavior. And we were trying to make a name for ourselves. Empire was trying to make a name for ourselves, like that we could run with the big dogs, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody just pulled everybody else up. And that's there's such energy on that album that you hear it. uh, And I experienced it again when I was listening over the last few days that uh, is you it's it's really palpable you can you can sense it when you oh, yeah. listen to that music it's it's yeah. fun and that's i remember the miking situation you know to really help fun, you know remember there was a whole issue with putting the mics in a certain yeah. kind of way at the right height which yeah. is really important yeah for and so i remember a lot of that going on i can't remember the the person's name who was the engineer at the time I remember what he looked like and everything Maybe he's listed on the recording. Yeah, Bud Graham and Ray Moore are the two yeah. engineers. Mm-hmm. Bud Graham. I mean, I, those names you see on a lot yeah. of albums, of Columbia albums from the 70s. They were very experienced. You, you knew you were in hands with people that really knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah that's and, uh, moving chairs and stands and stuff. So. Now, how did the addition of Fred Fennell uh, as a conductor for that second album, how did that... Did that change the dynamic of the recording sessions at all? It was fine. Um, I'm not sure he liked my playing that much. <laughs> I don't know. He had a kind of a very tame from the Eastman school, everything mm-hmm. very rounded and very nice. And I think he did a really fine job on the music and everything. But I know that I used to have a tendency to make, maybe play a little strong in those days when I could. And I remember he'd look at me, but he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't say anything (laughs) on some of those things, especially like if you notice the uh, trumpet concerto on the revisited album, Mm -hmm. there's a big bum, 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 trombone thing. And I know I was really (laughs) nailing it. He kind of looked at me like this. His head would go back a little bit and and he he would just keep going. And the more I did that, Rolf always liked it. He liked a lot of sound behind him and Mm -hmm. with him, Rolf. Yeah, it sounded phenomenal on that. Just extraordinary. I mean, I I thought that uh, the second album with a conductor pointed up that how uh, un, uh, sort of unnecessary a conductor is on the first album in a way. You know, uh, like right. if you if you assume the responsibility of keeping the the momentum and the, and the uh, uh, and the beat going forward then that's something that you appropriate mm-hmm. that a conductor would normally do. We, we didn't have to do that on the second album, uh, but we did, did it quite well, I think, on the first. I mean, we had excellent players there. They were all very fine, uh, experienced players from different ensembles. But the, the one thing that was different, I think, on the second album is you'll find that there are a lot of very subtle uh, retards and... Mm-hmm. Um, and pauses that where where then the music comes in and everybody's exactly together that you you need a conductor for mm-hmm. right yeah if if you were to go back and redo the revisited album would you prefer to do it without a conductor I wouldn't I thought it was just fine the way it it came out and again uh, the music was more sophisticated and it okay. it had more tempo changes and retards and and different uh things that that you need a conductor for it would have been 
difficult to get that, not impossible, but difficult and time consuming to get all those nuances to be rehearsed so that we knew, everybody knew exactly what to do at the, at the right time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think mean, the conductor time made it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, conductor made it a lot easier. Yeah. And I know that by the time Frederick Fennell was working on that album with you guys, that would have been his third Civil War brass band album that he was doing. Do you guys mm. recall, uh, I know, Norm, you were saying that you kind of blew him back a little bit, but do you recall <laughs> if if he was, I don't know, maybe advocating for the historical approach at all, or was he kind of along for the ride and, and followed your guys' lead? I remember, do you remember him speaking a lot, David? I actually don't. No, but he had done his homework. Very clear. He knew the pieces. He had done yeah. his homework and he, he acted a, like a conductor, but he would also defer to the members of the Empire Brass because, you know, he, he'd remember who was writing the check for him, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, who was writing his check. But uh, I thought it was a it was a great association and you could tell that he had a lot of experience too in working with ensembles where he assumed control and leadership when that was his function and he, but he wouldn't try to control everything. You know, he just, he, and he was very receptive to ideas. Uh, I thought he did a great job accompanying, for instance, accompanying Rolf on his uh, concerto mm -hmm. uh, on the concertino. And in the revisited album, there are a lot of, um, well, it's, or several pieces that have subtle tempo changes. He was really great at, at retrieving original tempos and stuff when, when it was called for. He was as good at what he did as everybody else was that was playing, you know, yeah. as we were on our instruments. And that's cool to hear that not only as a proficient conductor, but knowing when to speak up if he spoke up, but, you know, his interaction with people, you know, his people skills shows that extra level of experience you know, right. not, not just knowing how to, to wave the baton type of thing. And yeah. St Stephen's actually a, a graduate of Eastman, and we've we've had some discussions about uh, Frederick Fennell's kind of impact there. And we did a full episode on the podcast on Fennell's first Eastman recording. So, yeah, it, it's interesting to hear this, this different uh, experience, you know, with having him involved with this music. It, it's awesome. It's important, you know, for the, the history that we're trying to help tell so no he was an important guy in uh in 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 american music historical american music and uh you know of course wind ensembles forming the eastman wind ensemble and uh you know his sailboat he had a sailboat he loved to sail his, it was named ching foom ching foom symbols bass drum <laughs> that was his sailboat oh man that's awesome i didn't know that <laughs> did i teach you that at eastman Stephen? did you know that no, you know, honestly, I mean, there is uh, in the in Sibley, the library up on the top floor, well, maybe second to top floor, the top floor is the special collections uh, department, but um, they had kind of like a, a big display case that had a lot of his letters and stuff in it. And I, I'll be honest, I mean, I'd, I probably should have, you know, paid closer attention and looked at that exhibit when I was there. And, you know, now, now that I'm gone, it would be cool to go back and, and, and read up on that. But but yeah, I mean, they, honestly, his his name and stuff isn't really out there that much at Eastman. It's kind of contained on that in that section of the library. And I mean, I always say that 
you know, I, I probably should have utilized the library more when I was there. I mean, I went in to check out scores and whatnot, but I, I never really studied in the library or anything. And on the occasions I did, I was I was always like, yeah, I should do this more. This is kind of nice studying in the library. But <laughs> who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> I felt like like with Fennell, if I if I if I'm just kind of tapping into my feelings at the time, he um, I think what Dave said was absolutely spot on with how he handled everything. Um, it felt for me, it felt and maybe it was fine for the circumstance and the music that he was trying to do. I never saw him in any other circumstance, but he hit me as wanting everything to be very refined and and a bit controlled and not really wild, mm -hmm. you know. And so when I played, I felt that there was just maybe a bit too <laughs> too wild for him. And if I think I don't know how he was with the students, mm -hmm. I never yeah. had him. Whether he, you know command certain things like that. But I think for the circumstance, I think Dave's right. I I don't recall being extraordinarily inspired, but I respected the fact of his communications and how he handled the situation. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And it's funny in doing these interviews and hearing more about these kind of <clears throat> personal and working relationships between musicians and other musicians and musicians and conductors. It's just so interesting that you don't really pay attention to while you're a student. I mean, I'm still a student. I'm a doctoral student as well. But like at least in undergrad, you don't really pay attention to that kind of thing because you're just so worried about, you know, learning to play the horn better and, you know, not making a mistake in rehearsal and getting called out, <laughs> you know, that, that those kinds of things you miss. And then now, you know, as I get older, it's really interesting to hear about all those relationships and dynamics. So there's a, um, curious. There, uh, there was a bit of the history of the Empire Brass that um, maybe wasn't made clear by me at, in, in the outset. And that is that in, uh, in 1970, I joined BSO. So I was a, a member of the uh, BSO when Empire was, was formed in 72. Um, and, and I think around that same year, Rolf Smedvig uh, won a position in Boston Symphony. And then a couple of years later, Norm, did you join in 73 or 74? Rolf joined, I think, in 73. And I joined in 75. Oh, so, oh okay. That's what it was. So when the empire brass was a going thing and when, when at a time when I was uh, a member of the BSO and then Rolf joined and there were two members of empire that were BSO and then Norman joined uh, BSO. And so there were three members. So all of a sudden the, the empire brass became associated as an offshoot of the Boston symphony. Hmm. And we, it, it was not intended that way, uh, but we were all in Boston and we had these positions so uh, we did a lot of work and, and uh, fundraising and things for Boston Symphony as a result of, of the fact that three of us were members of, of BSO as well. But the group never was formed out of the Boston Symphony or came. It was the other way around. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Empire was a set personnel and then members also won positions in BSO. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to also make a comment about the um, you know, uh, Fennell's uh, influence on the group and uh, in the second album and, and our preparation on the first album. I think we went into those recording sessions, both the first and the second, very well prepared. We had rehearsed the music a great deal. I think we had used 
students to hear what all the parts sounded like together. And it, cause, uh, uh, you know, we, we had rehearsed this a lot. We knew what all these tunes sounded like. So, and that was true of the second album too. So that when uh, we finally rehearsed with the players uh, in the national symphony in Washington with Fennell, the, uh, all the, the album and the individual pieces had achieved a certain critical mass that Fennell was just able to jump onto, you know, just, mm -hmm. just, to, just to pile onto it. And there, there, we had conceptualized the album and the individual pieces before the, re the microphones went on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah, and uh, the quality of those performances, you know, obviously, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, but you know, Empire is, you know, has this reputation and this legacy associated with stuff, and everything you guys have put out and did put out, you know, obviously, uh, is always going to be listened to. But these these two albums in particular, I know everybody that's getting involved, and hopefully that community grows as Steven and I continue our project. But these mm. two albums in particular is a lot of those people's gateways into this entire, you know, time period of brass music. So your guys's legacy and contribution to that is only going to continue to grow, you know, as, as time goes on. So yeah, the, the preparation that you guys did <laughs> for those albums is, is very evident and is helping the longevity of these albums. Well, that's I great. Yeah. great to hear. You can't beat the playing either. I mean, it's just, I remember the first time I listened to it, I was in my car and I was honest, I was, I think I was driving home back to Pennsylvania and I was like, yeah, let me listen to these two. And, you know, right off the bat, you, you're kind of like, oh, your eyebrows raise up. You're like, oh, this is like really, really, really good playing. It's like, it's like a Norm blowing back Fennell, right? It's when you hear it for the first time in the car, it blows you back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe more of a, a business side question, but the CD was released in 2005 as a combination of the first two records. I know you guys were both out of Empire um, by that point, yeah. but ha but being members of the group, was there any, you know, as far as you guys know, any discussion of that happening? Or is that usually purely just like a record company thing where they decide to do that? I don't recall anything, Dave. Do you? I didn't know that CD existed until you mentioned it. Except me either. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. you say it's a combination of the two yeah so uh, but albums yep so the, the full first album is fully <laughs> present and then the second album is present except for i think three or four tracks were omitted from the cd due to length well i am i am loath to speak ill of the dead but i can tell you for as a fact that uh Rolf went to uh, the the uh, recording engineer, and uh, long you know decades after the seed, uh, after the records were the first two records were released, and he resold those those tapes to uh, J Japanese record companies, so they were released uh, from by a Japanese record company, unbeknownst to the other members of the group who would be owed royalties for those. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Sam found out, organized all the rest of the players, and chased Rolf and, and sued him for the royalties, oh, well. which we ended up getting. But <laughs> this may be one that got away, because I never knew of a CD. What label is it on? Good question. Another lawsuit coming on? Yeah. <laughs> it says music, <clears throat> Musical Heritage Society. It's Musical Heritage? Wow. 
That's not a teeny label. I think that's one that has, it has Sony printed on the disc itself too. Wow. Could you show me the cover? Uh, it's, the, it's the first cover. So it doesn't even say revisited anywhere on it. It's just a copy of the first album, but then the the second column and part of the bottom column is the, the revisited album. So wow. that's so that's all the first album and then the second album is there. Never, but there but there's a few tracks missing on the never seen that. Yeah. Never seen it. Yeah, I have that it was released in two thousand five is what I have it as. Yeah, and on Amazon, the label says Sony Classical. So who knows, maybe you guys can track them down and get another check out of it. That's not my forte, but... <laughs> I, um, I think so it's going to have to be one that got away. Oh, I'm sorry if we brought up any uh, any problems or... <laughs> didn't need to. We're just trying to, no. trying to tell stories here. So. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I would say just like stepping back from the... Uh, two albums and it's as a body of work, you know, 45 years later, 44 years later, um, we, I don't, I know that I didn't at the time realize the significance of what this music represented uh, to somebody who like, like uh, you, Stephen and you, Chris, who really are students of this era of uh, American brass music. Yeah. You know, the instruments had just been perfected. Or I mean, they were evolving, but they had mm-hmm. taken huge okay. leaps. So, and and I when uh, and so you know there were a lot of instruments out there, and and you you read about Stratton how he just before the Civil War decided that he was going to start to mass produce brass instruments, and then the Civil War happened, and there was this huge demand, and then he produced the music to supplement, you know, what collection from different composers to supplement for something to play. But I, what I was thinking about is that this was like a flowering of brass, the the original flowering of brass playing in America. And I was thinking about how difficult it would be to play this music. If you were an amateur, I mean, you know, it was, it's tough. It's tough. Some of it is very virtuosic stuff. Yeah, I, I read a story about uh, Patrick Gilmore, who was, uh, you know, a cornetist during the time period before he was a band leader and stuff. He uh, has a story of Patrick Gilmore that every night before he went to sleep, he would tie a string around his mouthpiece and tie the mouthpiece to his face and then sleep with the mouthpiece on his face because he thought that that would help uh, build his abisher while he slept. So, and this was happening in the 1860s. So yeah, these these guys were pretty serious about it. Uh, he wasn't thinking about what the tooth fairy would think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, wake up with a few extra bucks then, no? Yeah. It's like trying to cram for it. It's like trying to cram for a test by sticking the textbook under your pillow at night. You know, it's, it's like just doesn't well. work. Yeah, no, it's an, try it's that an mouthpiece one. Yeah, you don't have go. to practice anymore. Just. Yeah, let us send us an email. Let us know how it goes. We'll update yeah. the the episode. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's really interesting because with this type of music in general, uh, you know, you have people that get interested in it if they're just like Civil War history buffs. You know, they can get into it that way. There's people that are already interested in the instruments themselves. You know, there's people that right. Like, oh, I'm gonna play sackbut. I'm gonna play serpent. I'm gonna play cornetto. And oh, this is like the first valved brass you know, generation kind of thing. So they get into it that way. But then the the avenue that I think you guys contributed greatly to was the pure musical aspect of it and exposing 
you know, audiences to not one but two different collections of music from this time period. Being able to play it extremely well on modern instrument was really able to uh, accent the the musical aspect of it. You know, the exi- even the existence of the music in general. So I think that's cool that 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 the avenue that you, that empire I think contributed to greatly in that area. But even to today, there's only one other album that was put out by like a civil war reenacting group that tried to uh, record the entire brass band journal. So nobody else has done it except for that one group and you guys, when you did it for the very first time. So did they do it on period instruments? Theirs were on period instruments. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can can send along a link. if you guys (laughs) It'd be interesting to hear though. um, um, Because sometimes I think the direction where a lot of playing is going now, for me, is a little too um, influenced by our virtual reality. Our sense that we can Photoshop everything Hmm. and, you know, and clip it so everything is going, you know, exactly like this. I get a little concerned about that. Mm -hmm. Um, How how do you think that that ties into historical brass performance? Well, in historical brass performance, obviously, they don't, they didn't come originally Right. I mean, before in the original setting in the 1800s and 1900s and stuff, they were playing at the level of the technology of the rest of the culture in a certain kind of way. You know, they didn't have the, they didn't have computers. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the, the automobiles. They didn't, you know, it was a whole different era. So I wonder how they felt about music and what was the actual feelings going through in the original times when mm-hmm. they were doing this music in the situation where they were in the Civil War and this music's being pumped in and what is it representing and what is it causing in the different sides? To me, that's a very fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. So when people want to reenact that, I think the next level would be to actually really put yourself in that situation as best as you can because Mm -hmm. just playing a a period instrument isn't actually going to have carry the essence Mm -hmm. of what the music actually would be from a person who's actually feeling that time, living that time, breathing that time. You so, know what I mean? So bad intonation, call me weird, doesn't bother me if the sentiment and the reason for doing it is upfront and clear. Have you guys ever, either of you, uh, I know not the case during the recording of the albums, but did either of you ever experiment with playing on any type of period instrument? Well, I played didgeridoo. That's really period. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Aboriginal, right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I wrote a piece called Ancestors that we premiered at a brass bash at New England Conservatory in Jordan Hall in 2000, where it was written for didgeridoo, because that's one of the oldest brass, if you want to look at it that way, that was made out of, you know, eucalyptus log. Mm-hmm. But um, didgeridoo shofar. Danny Katzen played the ram's horn, the shofar, and mm. Doug Yo played serpent. Oh, wow. Hmm. And that covers, you know, well, 20,000 years ago, 5,500 <laughs> years ago, and, you know, when the, the yeah, serpent started to come. 600 years ago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a really interesting thing. And we really tried to tap into what was going on in those times. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an interesting thing. I Yeah, I wanna, I'm going to start to listen to some of maybe some of the other period recordings 
Yeah, we uh, have. They're actually playing the instruments. Mm -hmm. Well, on our website, we have uh, a resource page that's titled just discography. And it's a, an entire page that Stephen and I compiled of basically every commercial recording that's available right now of 19th century brass playing. And the majority of them are on period instruments. So, yeah, there's a whole website for that now. Could you send me a link when you have a moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. We'll send it. Yeah. And I was when you were talking about, you know, just playing the period instruments sometimes isn't enough to get the whole, you know, emotional weight. Chris, who is it? who brought up in their interview that when they, maybe it was Yari Villanueva or Mike O'Connor, when they would go out and reenact as a band and do these civil war reenactments where you have, you know, all these reenactors camping out, you know, as these civil war soldiers, that one of the reenactors came up to the band and said, you know, I've done a lot of these reenactments and I always felt that a little piece was kind of missing. And this is the first reenactment I've done where there's been a band in uniform playing on period instruments and that's the missing piece. Having this music in the camp, you know, really makes it hit home how hard this was, how hard this time period was, and just the the broader, you know, elements of, of society at the time. And I think that's really, and there, there was a quote that, you know, these this music, this brass band music during the Civil War was better than, than rations, you know, to these soldiers. So that, that you know, your, to illustrate your point exactly, yeah, yeah, especially when you try and then record this this music later, you know, you have to kind of make a decision about how you're going to do it. If you're going to either go full force with the period instruments and, and trying to get that across, or if you're going to do kind of what, what Empire did and kind of bring the music maybe to a little bit more modern of a time with modern instruments and whatnot. And there's, there's a trade-off there. And, you know, there's not one neither of those options is the only one or the right one. You know, it's, you just have to be thoughtful about how you do it when you do a project like that. Yeah. And, and I think we were just having fun with the music. Right. And don't uh, forget, it's great music. It's fun music. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, there was no recorded music at that time. If you wanted to hear music, you had to hear it live. Yeah. Right. Uh, and just regarding your question about period instruments, I mean, uh, as a French horn player, I dabbled with uh, natural horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, most of the re most of the performances that I have heard of natural horn are about the strongest argument you could make in favor of the invention of the valve. <laughs> <laughs> However, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, I heard uh, Jamie Somerville play the uh, Weber concertino on uh, natural horn with the Handel Haydn Society in 2004 or five, something like that. It was astounding. Hmm. And he's not known as a natural horn virtuoso, but, <laughs> and there are a couple other guys that really can do amazing things yeah. uh, with a natural horn. But uh, generally speaking, it's, uh, it's sort of a, not a, a, a serious, endeavor it's kind of like it's horn players appreciate it but nobody else does you know mm -hmm. like when you play a natural horn uh, mozart concerto on a natural horn nobody knows how hard it is except the horn player you yeah, know i mean uh so that's just been my experience with uh, uh traditional instruments although i you know i for many years i uh did brass repair and and i encountered a lot of old french horns and it was amazing to me how good some of them actually were. The brass band that Stephen and I play in here in Fairfax bought uh, through the university two 
E-flat soprano cornets. Uh, but one of them in particular sounds like a, a modern cornet. Like this thing sounds gorgeous, and it was made in the 1860s. Mm. So, yeah, granted, we've played and seen other horns made from that time period that, you know, sound like it belongs on a wall in an Applebee's. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's a... Uh, yeah, it could be hit or miss, but yeah, they they didn't know what they were doing uh, that early on, which is pretty incredible. Uh, your guys' relationship with period performance today, it, it kind of sounded like you you were both getting a little bit intrigued with some of the ideas that we were talking about. Um, are there any closing thoughts on just brass playing in general or period performance or anything like that? I'd like to say something about the importance of period performances now that I'm looking at it from a very different place at this point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do with something what I said earlier about everything getting so mechanically, for lack of a better word, perfect, you know, that a note can never deviate. And people are, when I walk into a practice room sometimes at the schools I'm teaching at, I see people hooked up to all this equipment. They're videoing themselves. They have headphones on. They have, you know, a tuning device right here and the metronome going here. And and they're like being come, coming part of the Borg. <laughs> it's very, and, and they're trying, the reason why they're doing that is they're trying to have the mechanics, the first overlay, what I would call a playing, so together that no one is going to argue about their mechanics from an objective you know, objective standpoint, they're going to go, yep, that was that, that was that. And so they can squeeze, this is mostly orchestral musicians. So they can squeeze through that little mouse hole of the audition. The great thing about period instruments is I don't think, I think people were maybe struggling and there were different levels of ability because of the pedagogy over the years. You know, the people talking more about uh, formations of the embouchure, the articulation, and the demands have gotten greater. So the pedagogy got, you know, as it goes on, technology grows, no matter if it's travel and the different things we travel in that greater or our actual playing ability or machine, the physical machine. You can see how many breathing classes can you see online? How many things about the embouchure? How many things about range? And so all these things have accumulated hundreds of years of experience. <laughs> And so I guess what I'm saying is the importance of going back into time is to kind of get out of the bias of being stuck in this world that we're in right now, thinking it's just better. I don't necessarily agree all of it is better. And I think it's important to go back and this is what they were playing on. But the people who are playing on them are also different. You'd have to be really good at time traveling or so good with getting into the essence of the history that you would be able to really encompass and bring that literally mm -hmm. to life. And the more I think people do that, I'll tell you also what it'll do. It'll relieve them of the pressures of what the standards are today mm -hmm. in a good way, in an organic yeah. way to free up some of that worry that you're not going to be perfect. But there is, like David was saying, or some of you were saying, these people were brought together. They weren't all professional, astute virtuosos. Yeah. 
And so I think that's so important to give other people hope too, that you don't have to just be this perfect virtuoso to be able to have music be meaningful in your life and to enjoy your instrument and to communicate something. And that to me is one of the vital reasons that that has to happen. It's like uh, when I hear of uh, orchestras that, uh, an orchestra that plays uh, on period instruments, uh, violins have gut strings and the natural horns and you know uh, instruments that were the state of the art at the time. I, I think it, there's a false um, equality going on here. I mean, if Beethoven had heard the power of a modern orchestra, I don't think he would have written for the orchestra that he, that he, that he did, if he had a choice. He didn't have a choice. That was the state of the art at the time. Beethoven's music, just as an example of one composer, is so uh, bipolar. I mean, and 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 can rage that the power of a modern orchestra would be something that I think would be very attractive to him, and that he would choose over uh, the the sort of uh, weak, weaker um, uh, dynamic of, of the period orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's sort of my take on on period performance. Well, as a as a direct example of that, I know Hector Berlioz. Uh, once he heard the tuba for the first time, he started going back and replacing Ophiclide and Serpent with the tuba because he preferred the power of yeah. that instrument. So yeah. that's you know same exact you know time period is that they this this newer technology would have been attractive as you're saying for these people, and that that's one example of of that happening. Yeah, there's a famous. Uh, cartoon of Berlioz, you know, Berlioz by a newspaper uh, cartoonist at the time, you know, like showing him, showing Berlioz bringing in every possible instrument, including with the, including the kitchen sink, you know, and <laughs> screaming cats and all this. So like they thought he was, he was so weird because he wanted to include all these new different sounds in his, in his orchestra. I know that we didn't think of ourselves as producing benchmark albums for the uh, you know, future uh, American brass band uh, uh, discipline when we were making either of them. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's significant. Like I said, it's that that Fennell Eastman recording, and then it was you guys. So yeah, and, and you put out two of them, so <laughs> you got out ahead. That <laughs> it was kind of unique. Uh, it was certainly accessible by a wide variety of people, probably more so than many of the other albums that yeah, definitely. recorded as a brass quintet mm -hmm. oh, but, yeah. uh, ne never thought that it was going to going to be such a anchor in uh in the uh, history and repertoire of brass american brass music i've learned a lot yeah, well, okay. thank you for you guys for your guys's contribution. Even though you yeah. didn't completely know that at the time, but yeah, no, it, it's significant. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. So this has been a, a great you know chat with with the two of you guys. And um, so where can people find more about you, your past projects, and kind of the stuff you have currently brewing? People want to Google my name, Norman Bolter. That'll take them to websites i have over 100 youtube videos up um called the frequency bone summer music connection mm -hmm. yeah there's definitely over 100 videos by now in fact i'm starting the next frequency bone summer music connection 12 uh this week there's a video up and then i put things on the blog and because of this situation we're going to start actually having 
Zoom sessions um, with interesting with interested parties. And this year is called Music in the Natural Worlds. Um, and I teach at New England Conservatory and Boston Conservatory. So I think if people just, if they want to know what's going on, they can go to, you know, Google my name and take you to a website and take us to some videos and stuff like that. I have written probably about 350 things now. And for all brass instruments and strings and woodwinds and, and a lot of things for trombone and bass trombone and haven't written a euphonium piece yet. <laughs> yes, I did. Euphonium, alto, flute, and piano. There you go. Oh, I like how my fiance plays a uh, plays flute and plays alto flute. So I'll have to, to yeah. check it out. <laughs> there you go, Chris. Yeah. E M E, and it's uh, about my wife as this incredible gardener that she is. Very cool. So, um, but I've written yeah a lot of things and for antiphonal brass. Um, but for me, just to say. Music to me is no different than life. It's a living thing. And so whether you're playing period instruments or you're playing modern instruments, if the deeper part of you is not invested, the essence won't appear, period. Yeah. It just won't happen. Mm -hmm. It'll just have a different sound and a different fashion because that's what changes through the ages is fashion, styles. Um, different technologies, different times, different epochs. We'd like to thank again David Ohanian and Norman Bolter for taking the time to come out and speak with Stephen and I for this episode of the Early American Brass Band Podcast. Two incredibly generous people, and they were extremely enjoyable and fun to talk to, and we hope you really enjoyed that interview with them. It was a lot of fun. Our featured album for this episode is the album we talked about, uh, the American Brass Band Journal. It was re-released in 2005 on a CD, and it has um, pretty much all the music from both of the two original albums. So you can find it there, or uh, if you've got a turntable lying around and you want to go find the old uh, original release on LP, you know, that's great too. You can hear uh, a few extra tracks. But um, like I said at the top, if you haven't heard these albums before, uh, definitely go listen to them. Uh, they're some of the best playing of this music that I've that I've heard and granted they are on um, modern horns so that takes away a little bit of the challenge uh, with just wrestling the intonation but still I mean these hold up uh, today as some of the, the greater uh, recordings of this music so with that uh, thanks for listening and we will catch you on episode 13. <laughs> <laughs>